As we tune in once more to our soap opera, The Days of Jacob, we find our protagonist, Jacob, having been away from his home in the land of Haran for 20 years. He's married a pair of sisters, Rachel the Hot and Leah the Knot, and has had multiple run-ins with their master trickster of a father, Laban. And in their latest contest, I don't know if you guys caught what I did there because they're both con men, so in their latest contest, never mind. In their latest contest, Jacob has managed to emerge with large and strong flocks and herds of livestock while Laban's have decreased and grown weaker. And if you want to know how that all went down, listen to our previous message on the website. And now things are starting to boil. Uncle Laban is not going to be okay with the situation, neither is his family. The tension is rising, and Uncle Laban doesn't like being the loser in an exchange with Jacob. So we pick it up. Genesis 31, verse 1. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's son, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has acquired all this wealth. So Jacob hears the rumor that Laban's sons are talking and they're pretty bitter about the fact that he's managed to outsmart their father and in the process greatly diminish their father's wealth. And they're especially bitter because all that wealth had been destined to pass down to them. Verse 2, and Jacob saw the countenance of Laban and indeed it was not favorable toward him as before. You see, Laban used to love having Jacob around because God was blessing everything that Jacob did and Jacob was working for Laban, which meant that Laban got blessed. But now Jacob is being blessed and Laban isn't. And Laban doesn't turn to the Lord and say, well, how can I be blessed too? He just gets mad. He just gets mad. So Jacob hears that Laban's sons are mad at him and he notices that Laban's mad at him. And the Lord comes to Jacob to deliver a message of the obvious. Verse 3, then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your family and I will be with you. Time to go, Jacob. Let's get out of here. And once again, we see the Lord getting Jacob to make a move by using the imminent threat of death as motivation. You might recall that the Lord was only able to get Jacob to leave his home at the age of around 75, 20 years previously, by letting things get to the place where his brother Esau wanted to murder him. And so he had to leave home anyway. And now the Lord has to use the threat of being potentially murdered by Laban and or Laban's sons to get Jacob to return home. And I'm grateful for this, and I'll tell you why. You can make a note of this. Because it reminds me that God uses all kinds of circumstances to get us to where we need to be. God uses all kinds of circumstances to get us to where we need to be. You know, sometimes it'll look like everything is going wrong. A situation is souring. Tensions at work are becoming untenable. Certain relationships are falling apart. A financial situation is becoming unsustainable. But if you love the Lord, you have the promise of Romans 8.28, the promise that God is doing something good. And this is just one example of why faith is so important in the Christian life. Because if you don't trust that the Lord is working good for you, you'll look around and you'll say, it's all falling apart. But if you know, if you know that you have a heavenly Father who loves you, 
and only wants good for you, then you're able to look around and say, God is moving some things around in my life. You ever met a believer mature enough to tell you that? How's life going? God's doing some things is what they'll they'll say and that's like Christian code for. I don't know what the heck is going on, but God's doing something and I know the end is gonna be good. And so I'm okay with that even though right now it seems like everything is falling apart. And it encourages me greatly that in Jacob's life, when it seemed like everything was falling apart, the Lord was simply working to move Jacob to where he needed to be. And it encourages me that the goodness of our God is just so relentless, you know? He can't, he can't help himself because he's the perfect father who loves his children and he wants to see them blessed. So even when we're stubborn and we won't move, God will say, okay, I'll find a way to get you to where you need to be. I'll find a way to make you move. And many of you have challenges and struggles that, that I'm not aware of, but here's what I do know. I know that if you love the Lord, he's doing something good in your life. I know that with absolute certainty. If you love the Lord, he is doing something good in your life. So trust that, believe that, always hold on to that, and then rejoice in that. You can be glad, even when it looks like everything's falling apart, you can still rejoice in the fact that I know God's doing something good, even when we don't know what it is. Verse four, so Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah, his two wives, to the field, to his flock, and said to them, I see your father's countenance, that it is not favorable toward me as before, but the God of my father has been with me. So women are generally more perceptive than men. And so when Jacob tells them, you know, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but ever since I started swindling your dad, he seems to not like me anymore. They're probably thinking, welcome to the party, Jacob. But Jacob, uh, he's also not in a panicked state. And we notice it's because he knows that God is with him. And he clearly believes that that actually means something at this point in his life because he tells his wives, don't worry though. God's with me. God's with me. Now get this. Make a note of this and we're going to talk about it. Get this. An understanding of God's presence produces peace and casts out fear. An understanding of God's presence produces peace and casts out fear. Let me put it another way. If we abide in Jesus, fear cannot abide in us. They cannot be in the same space at the same time. Now I'm not talking about being saved, I'm talking about abiding in Jesus. I'm talking about clinging to him. I'm talking about walking with him every day. I'm talking about living in fellowship and close relationship with the Lord. And I'm telling you that if we abide in Jesus, fear cannot abide in us. You know, I love the word of God, and I know you do too. And, and, and when we love the word of God, it's so crucial that we understand there's a difference between knowing something intellectually and knowing something on a, on a spirit and soul level. And sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that just because we know something intellectually, just because we know it in our minds, we must be doing it and applying it to our lives. Not so. God is with us. Now how can you tell if that truth has made the journey from your head to your heart? The answer is fear, fear. Whenever I find myself being overwhelmed with fear, anxiety, the honest truth is that inevitably I've stopped abiding in Jesus. 
And so what I need to do when I find myself overwhelmed with fear and anxiety is just to get back to spending time in relationship with Jesus. Back to the basics. Back to being in the word. Back to even sharing my fears with him in prayer. Back to taking some time to worship, taking some time to to journal with him, just time in his presence, and we say, well, how is that gonna help? How's that gonna help? John the Apostle told us, perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. You don't spend all your time trying to cast out the fear. You can't. You spend your time trying to abide in the love of Jesus, and the fear has to leave. That's how it works. When you're abiding in Jesus and in his perfect love, fear cannot sustain itself. If we abide in Jesus, fear cannot abide in us. It's that simple. Well, Jacob keeps talking to his wives and he says in verse six, and you know that with all my might I've served your father. He says, I've worked hard for your dad with integrity for about 20 years now. Yet your father has deceived me and changed my wages 10 times. And your father's response has been to take advantage of me and deceive me. But God did not allow him to hurt me. If he said thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore speckled. And if he said thus, the streaked shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked. So God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. He says, at the end of the day, none of this could have happened unless God decided to bless me and to not bless your father. This is God's doing. And let me tell you how I know that. In verse 10, he says, And it happened at the time when the flocks conceived that I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream, and behold, the rams which leapt upon the flocks were streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted. Then the angel of the Lord spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob. And I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift your eyes now and see. All the rams which leap on the flocks are streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. And so now we discover that all the weird stuff that happened in the back half of the last chapter was obviously God's doing. In a dream, God told Jacob, make a deal with Laban, where your wages will be any of the spotted, speckled, or streaked livestock that are born. Make that deal with him, Jacob, and I will bless you through that deal. So Jacob makes that deal, and the Lord comes through and causes Jacob to be blessed beyond his wildest dreams. It didn't ultimately happen because of some natural process. It happened because God made it happen. God chose to do it. He did a miracle. And I love what the Lord says to Jacob in verse 13. Let me just read it again. He says, I'm the God of Bethel where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. 20 years earlier when Jacob was fleeing his home to get away from his brother Esau who wanted to kill him. And he was also going to Padan Aram in this land of Haran to look for a wife at the same time. He met the Lord in a dream and the Lord promised to bless him, and Jacob was so overwhelmed, he gave his life to the Lord, and he made this vow in Genesis 28. I think I put it on your outlines. He said, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So here's what the Lord is saying to Jacob when he says, I'm the God of Bethel. He's saying, Jacob, 20 years ago, you made a vow to put me first in your life. 
in everything, including with your money, your possessions. 20 years later, Jacob, after 20 years of doing that, take a look at your life. Take inventory of your life, Jacob. Have I been with you? Have I taken care of you? Have I blessed you? And guess what, 20 years later for Jacob, the answer was absolutely. He came into that land with nothing and he was leaving with great riches and wealth and flocks and herds of livestock. The last verse that we read in the previous chapter said this about Jacob. It said, thus the man became exceedingly prosperous. You might want to underline that on your outlines. Exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks, female and male servants and camels and donkeys. Now the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, gives us almost extreme examples to learn from. And a lot of the times the things in our life are not going to be that dramatic but they're extreme examples to help us understand lessons. And so I have to point this out because this is what happened in Jacob's life. He came in with nothing, started trusting the Lord with the tithe when he had nothing, and the Lord dramatically blessed Jacob's finances for doing that. And if you're here and you've been putting the Lord first in your life for more than 20 years or more, here's what I know. I know that if I asked you, has the Lord been with you? Has he taken care of you? Has he blessed you? Your answer would be absolutely, absolutely. So if you're not trusting the Lord and you're not putting him first in every area of your life, you're missing out. That's why you've never met someone who's tithed faithfully for more than five years who will tell you, you know what, I regret it. God did absolutely nothing for me, didn't come through. You'll never meet that person. And as we've said before, if you refuse to trust the Lord with your finances, you're putting a a cap on your spiritual growth. You're saying, my faith is never gonna go past this point. This is as far as it goes. Whatever God wants to do in my life, whatever he might wanna do in me, it stops right here because I'm never gonna trust God more than this. And if you're doing that, you're missing out. It's not about what God wants from you. It's about what he wants for you. But our part is faith. And if we won't provide faith, then we're going to limit the work of God in our life. It's just that simple. So trust him. Trust him. Make a note of this. I'm watching to see who doesn't write it down. When Jacob began trusting God with his finances, God began blessing Jacob's finances. When he began trusting God with his finances, God began blessing his finances. And that principle is true of all of life. Trust God with your relationships, he'll begin blessing your relationships. Trust him with your work, he'll begin blessing your work. Whatever area you trust him with, the Lord will bless. The Lord is also saying to Jacob, he's saying, hey Jacob, remember, remember when I came to you at Bethel. You were at your lowest point, running for your life. And I came to you in kindness seeking only to bless you. And I'm that same God today, the same God who blessed you. So you can trust me that when I ask you to do something, when I tell you it's time to leave this land, all I'm doing is calling you to do what's best for you. You can trust me, Jacob. Remember where we've been before. And one of the reasons that communion is so important for the believer is that we need to be reminded all the time that the God who calls us to live for him here and now every single day is the same God who came to us and saved us at our lowest point. How low? The Bible says we were dead in our sins. We were dead in our sins. 
And all God did when he came to us was seek to bless us, saving us and bringing us into his family. And every time we take communion, we remember that's who God is. That's how God came to me. That's how we met. He's only ever sought to do good for me. So when he calls me to follow him today, absolutely, Lord, I will. Absolutely. Keep reading. And the Lord had said to Jacob, he tells his wives, now arise, get out of this land and return to the land of your family. So he says, ladies, the same God that spoke to me in that dream in Bethel and the same God who told me how to do all this and end up with these flocks and herds, that same God is telling us we got to get out of here. So we got to get out of here. Verse 14, then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there still any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not considered strangers by him? For he sold us and also completely consumed our money. So in a rare moment of unity, Rachel and Leah are completely on the same page here and in complete agreement with Jacob that it's time for them to leave. They feel like they've been treated as commodities by their father and it's pretty clear that from their perspective any meaningful relationship with their dad ended a long time ago. And many of us are familiar with the concept of a dowry wherein a man would pay a woman's father for the right to marry her. And in this culture at this time, the dowry would actually be used as a type of life insurance policy. The woman's father was to hang on to that dowry in case anything happened to her husband and then that dowry could be used or sold to fund taking care of his daughter who would now be a widow. That was the idea. But what Rachel and Leah are saying is that as soon as their dad got that money, he spent all of it. So Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, seven years for Leah, the equivalent of at least several hundred thousand dollars in earning, and they're saying, our dad didn't keep that to take care of us. He just spent it, put new rims on the cart just as quick as he could, burned right through it. So they're like, nope, there's, there's nothing here. Our dad doesn't care about us, hasn't cared about us for a long time. So yeah, we're good to go. Verse 16, for all these riches which God has taken from our father are really ours and our children's. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. Jacob, in taking from our father to give to you, the Lord is just making things right. So do whatever the Lord's telling you to do. We're on board. Verse 17, Then Jacob rose and set his sons and wives on camels, and he carried away all his livestock and all his possessions which he had gained, his acquired livestock which he had gained in Padan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. So he packs up everything, he's getting ready to head home, but he's doing this on the down low. He's not telling anyone outside his family. Verse 19, now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. These household idols were called teraphim, and they were small little carved statues of pagan gods, pagan deities. And you know, it's so easy for us to think, those stupid people, thinking these little idols were gods. But what they actually believed is they believed that each of these idols represented a philosophy, a philosophy, a belief system, something they could put their hope in. And so each teraphim would represent something different, like you would have the the multi-breasted, Ashtaroth, which represented sensuality. And I think I speak pretty accurately when I say we don't worship sensuality in the form of a carved idol anymore, but we turn on our TV or hop on our phone. It's all over our culture. We're definitely still worshiping that same philosophy. You had the little god Mammon who represented wealth and money, and God knows people still bow down to that philosophy every day all around us. You had Moloch, the owl god, representing 
pleasure and prosperity. I think people are still kind of into that. And you had Baal representing the, the intellect and treating the intellect as God, which we see all the time. You can just hop on Facebook, go to any comment section, and people are worshiping Baal right there. And the Apostle Paul would later tell us that behind all of these philosophies, all of these worldly philosophies are demonic entities, real powers of Satan. And so the names might change, the names of the gods might change, there might be idols, there might not, but those same forces have been at work essentially since the fall of man on the earth and they're still being worshiped today. So even though it might seem silly to us, it was just their version of what people are still doing in our day and age. But the real question is why, why does Rachel take her father's teraphim? Well, we can't know for sure. The traditional explanation is that she's a believer at this time, but she's still kind of steeped in the cultures of her land. So if you've ever known someone who's been involved in a culture that has a lot of traditions, sometimes they become a believer, and it's a process as they begin to rid themselves of these traditions because they don't realize yet that they're not just traditions, they're spiritual practices. And so maybe this is what's going on with Rachel. She's a believer, but she's still viewing some of these things as traditions, and she thinks it'll be good luck to have these teraphim. But there's another possible explanation worth mentioning. In 1925, archaeologists began unearthing what would eventually amount to around 5,000 tablets in an area known as Nuzi. It's a town substantially east of Haran. And these 5,000 tablets date back to around 1500 BC, which is the time period when our story is actually taking place right now. And they're worth researching, N-U-Z-I, by the way. Just go put it in Wikipedia because they confirm a whole bunch of cultural practices that are mentioned in Genesis, like the idea of having a child through your maid or your husband marrying a maid and then becoming like a secondary wife. All that stuff is actually confirmed in these tablets they found at Nuzi. And so one of the other things that they also told us that we learned about in the early 20th century is that these teraphim had a, a secondary function. They served to indicate property ownership. They served as a type of title deed for a property. We don't know how, but they did. And if a father died, a son could prove his ownership of his father's property by producing the specific teraphim. And so it's very possible that Rachel is stealing her father Laban's teraphim so that when he dies, Jacob would be able to make a legal claim on all of Laban's property. She perhaps got caught up in this whole idea of, yeah, we're gonna stick it to dad, we're gonna split, he's been a jerk, he spent all of our money, I'm gonna go steal his idols too, and then one day, We'll get payback and all his land will be ours. It's very possible something like that is going on. And we'll see what happens with these idols in just a little bit. Verse 20, and Jacob stole away, unknown to Laban the Syrian, in that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. So he fled with all that he had. He arose and crossed the river and headed toward the mountains of Gilead. So Jacob's trying to put some distance between him and Laban by fleeing without letting anybody know. He takes all his stuff and they just head out. Verse 22, and Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. Somebody notices they're gone and tells Laban. Then he took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days journey and he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. Jacob is essentially three days ahead and it takes Laban a week but Laban's able to catch up and he probably catches up because Jacob's traveling with his whole household. They got a whole bunch of U-Haul trucks and Laban is just chasing them with sort of a quick attack posse. Verse 24, 
But God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. So Laban is, he's shook because he has this encounter with God in a dream and the Lord says to him, do not threaten Jacob and don't lie to him by pretending everything's good. Don't try anything funny, Laban. Jacob's my boy, so watch yourself. When God comes to you in a dream and says that, that's gonna leave you a little bit shaken up. So Laban's gonna plan to watch what he says to Jacob very carefully. And it's worth noting too that when God comes to Jacob in a dream, in Bethel, Jacob becomes a believer. When God comes to Laban in a dream, and Laban knows it's God, Laban does not become a believer. And the reason is because the issue of believing in God is never about evidence. It's never about evidence. It's ultimately about whether or not a person is willing to surrender control of their life to God. Jacob was, Laban was not. Laban had seen the blessings of God and the dangers of going against God and it made no difference. He saw how Jacob was blessed by God, and even he himself was blessed by God through Jacob. He was visited by God and warned in a dream and clearly understood that God had the ability to kill him, but it made no difference. There are people who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead who did not become believers. Most of the religious leaders who talked with Jesus face to face and saw miracle after miracle after miracle did not become believers. It's not about evidence. It's about whether or not a person is willing to surrender control of their life to God. And Laban was not. Verse 25, so Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with the sword? In reality, his daughters couldn't wait to leave. Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? For I might have sent you away with joy and songs with timbrel and harp. Not what would have happened, but but Laban insists otherwise. And it's kind of hilarious that Laban is so offended that he's been deceived by Jacob when he basically wrote the book on deception. But Laban's one of those guys who has expectations of others that he would never even put on himself. But we also gotta be honest, we're gonna find that even after 20 years of dealing with Laban and his deceptions and trickery, Jacob still hasn't figured out that Laban is a giant mirror. A giant mirror being used by the Lord to help Jacob see his own propensity for deception. To help Jacob understand what it's like to be on the other side of deception. It's tragic how easily we can point out and spot the flaws in others that we struggle with deeply ourselves and yet fail to recognize. If you're looking for excellent mirrors to help you see your shortcomings and struggles, I recommend children. They're fantastic at it. You know, there's not much worse than than, than seeing an attitude in your kids and thinking, that is awful. Where did they learn that? Only to have the awful realization that it's from you 
which you know you'd never admit to your spouse, but you know, you recognize deep down. You do the traditional thing and tell your spouse they must have gotten that from you. But uh, you know, you know, and you see that mirror reflecting back at you and Jacob hasn't figured that out yet. Verse 28, and you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters and now you've done foolishly in so doing. Shame on you, Jacob. You can kind of imagine Jacob and his wives are just rolling their eyes as Laban goes through this monologue. It is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. Laban says, I'm gonna end you, Jacob, is what I might have said if your God hadn't come to me in a dream last night and told me not to, so I won't say that. And now you have surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? But never mind all that other stuff, Jacob. It is what it is. You're as good as gone. I get that. But why did you steal my teraphim? Now remember, Jacob has no clue that Rachel has stolen her father's teraphim. Verse 31, then Jacob answered and said to Laban, well, because I was afraid, for I said, perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. He says, I left because I didn't trust you. I don't trust you at all, Laban, and I thought that if I told you I was going, you might try and steal your daughters back from me. With whomever you find your gods, do not let them live. In the presence of our brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Rachel's got to be getting really, really nervous at this point. As Jacob says, search everything. Tell me what I've done wrong. Verse 33, and Laban went into Jacob's tent into Leah's tent and into the two maids' tents, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols, put them in the camel's saddle, and sat on them. And Laban searched all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of woman is with me. And he searched, but did not find the household idols. Now this amazes me, if you're not understanding what's going on here, this amazes me because I have observed this phenomenon to this day, that if a woman wants to get out of practically any situation involving a man, all she has to do is reference woman's issues. Because men are so awkward about this topic and, and so desperate to change the subject when it comes up. You know, if a male boss says to a woman, why are you late? The woman need only answer woman's issues. And, and the boss will drop the subject. I, I even think that this conversation would be possible between a husband and wife. I need to buy some new shoes. Why? Woman's issues. But, but I, I, I don't understand. Would you like me to explain? No, good luck looking for those new shoes. And I find it hilarious that here we have a woman, Rachel, using this exact strategy on her father in order to keep hidden these teraphim that she's stolen from him. So we actually have biblical evidence here that women have been using this excuse for at least three and a half thousand years and it's been working since 1500 BC. That's incredible. No signs of that changing anytime soon. Verse 36. Then Jacob was angry and rebuked Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my trespass? 
What is my sin that you've so hotly pursued me? Although you've searched all my things, what part of your household things have you found? Set it here before my brethren and your brethren, that they may judge between us both. So he's ticked off because he thinks this is just another one of Jacob of Laban's schemes. These 20 years I've been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young, and I've not eaten the rams from your flock. You see, back then, if you were watching someone's flock and you or your family was hungry, it was customary that you were allowed to feed yourself and your family from that flock. Verse 39, that which was torn by beasts, I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. When a wild animal killed one of Laban's animals, Jacob paid for it, even though that wasn't expected. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Even when thieves stole animals, Laban would make Jacob pay for them. Again, even though that wasn't the norm back then. Verse 40, there I was in the day the drought consumed me and the frost by night and my sleep departed from my eyes. Thus I have been in your house 20 years. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock and you have changed my wages 10 times. So he would change Jacob's wages even when they had an agreement in place. And all Jacob did in response was just keep working even harder for Laban. Verse 42, unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. So he says, if it weren't for God being with me, and if it weren't for the fact that you're scared of my dad, Isaac, and his world-class private militia, I have no doubt that you would have sent me away with nothing. You would have stolen and gone back on your word. But God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. But make a note of this and we'll talk about this. One of the most difficult benchmarks to reach in Christian maturity is allowing the Lord to defend you instead of defending yourself. One of the most difficult benchmarks to reach in Christian maturity is allowing the Lord to defend you instead of defending yourself. You know, there will be times in life when you will want to fight. You will want revenge. You will want to respond to a vicious attack with a vicious attack of your own. You will hear someone that's been talking about you and you'll say, oh, well, I'd love to tell everyone a few things about that person. There'll be times when someone will try to sabotage you and you'll want to return the favor. And most of the time, the Holy Spirit will say, just leave it to the Lord. Just leave it to the Lord. And for 20 years, Jacob's been taken advantage of by his uncle Laban. And clearly the Lord had told him, Jacob, I've got a plan for you. And nothing that Laban can do to you is gonna change my plan for you. Just keep doing your best to honor and serve him and I'll make sure that you end up blessed. And it couldn't have been easy. Holding your tongue is never easy, especially when you feel like you've been wronged. But remember what the Lord said in Deuteronomy 32 and Paul would quote this in the New Testament. It's on your outlines. The Lord said, vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. Hasten upon them. So God says, leave that to me. Leave it to me to make things right. Another reason why it's good to leave justice in the Lord's hands is that you and I almost never have all the information. I don't even want to say how many of you have learned this lesson. The question is how many of us have learned this lesson more than like a hundred times, right? Because it's one that we just seem to keep learning over and over. We almost never have all of the information. Like Jacob with Laban's teraphim, I don't have all the facts. None of us, none of us knows as much as we think we do. 
about any situation. But my problem is that I think I know everything about the situation I'm upset about or the person I'm angry with. I think I know everything there is to know. Know enough to be mad. But the only person who knows everything is the Lord. And the counsel he gave us is to leave vengeance in his hands. And then through the Apostle Paul, he gave us this insight. Don't forget this, Ephesians 6, he said, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. The Lord's counsel to us was stop looking for vengeance and payback on the surface level, on the physical level where you can see things. Understand that there are spiritual things going on behind the scenes that are having a much bigger impact than you realize. And so leave vengeance in the Lord's hands, leave justice in the Lord's hands, but you do business on the spiritual level. You make sure you don't get wrapped up in bitterness. You make sure you don't get wrapped up in anger. You pray for your enemies. You deal with it on the spiritual level where things are really, really happening. So important for us to remember we don't know everything about any situation. And so important to remember to stay focused on the spiritual realm ahead of the practical, physical realm. Verse 43, and Laban answered and said to Jacob, these daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and this flock is my flock. All that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or to these my children whom they have borne? Now therefore, come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. He says, I don't like this, Jacob. I don't like any of it. And I think all of this should be mine. But there's nothing I can really do about it. So let's make a covenant so that I don't have to worry about you or your dad or your dad's army coming after me for revenge. Verse 45, so Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Then Jacob said to his brethren, gather stones, and they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there on the heap. Laban called it Jigar Sahadatha, which means the heap of witness in Aramaic, but Jacob called it Galid, it means the same thing but just in Hebrew. And Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore its name was called Galid, also Mitzpah, which means watchtower, because he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. If you afflict my daughters, or if you take other wives beside my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. See, Jacob's never done anything to justify Laban's concerns that he might afflict his daughters. This is just a, a loser making the best threats that he can in a situation trying to save face. And Jacob's actually being very gracious by not saying, Oh, no, no, we're not going to make a covenant. In fact, the next time you see me, I'm going to be with about 2,000 armed men. You'll see me on the hill, and that'll be the last day that you ever breathe. Peace out. He could have done that. So he's being pretty gracious by agreeing to make this covenant and just be done with this chapter of his life. Verse 51, then Laban said to Jacob, here is this heap, and here is this pillar, which I have placed between you and me. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness that I will not pass beyond this heap to you, and you will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar to me for harm. So the agreement is simple. It's a line in the sand, literally, that neither man would cross in order to harm the other. They were both promising that when it came to their disagreements, they were gonna stay in their own corner, so to speak. But it also meant that if Jacob did have Laban's teraphim, which Laban clearly thought he did, 
Jacob couldn't show up in the future and make a land claim using them. This is sort of a contingency plan as well for Laban in light of the fact that he's lost his teraphim. Verse 53, the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judge between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac. So just a small thing here, just so you understand. Laban says, let's swear by the God of Abraham, Nahor, and their father. Jacob says, I'm not going to do that, but I'll swear by the fear of my father, Isaac. So what's going on? Well, just very simply, in Joshua 24.2, we're told that Nahor, quote, served other gods. He served other gods. So Jacob has no intention of swearing by these other gods. That's all that's going on here. Verse 54, then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread. And they ate bread and stayed all night on the mountain. And early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his sons and daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. So when the dust finally settled on Jacob's relationship with Laban and his time in Haran, Jacob came out of the situation blessed and prosperous. So make a note of this truth and be encouraged by this. God is able to bless us in difficult places and situations. God is able to bless us in difficult places and situations. You know, sometimes we look around and we think, this is just a season to survive. This is not a season to thrive. This is not a season that anything really good is gonna come out of. We're just trying to ride this time period of life out. But you have no idea what the Lord can do in you and for you in a difficult place. If you'll trust the Lord, you'll be amazed how he can cause you to emerge blessed from places that you thought were a curse. He's doing something good in your life. Always, always. There's no season of life where our testimony is, you know what, I think I'm just in a season where the Lord's not doing anything good. He's always doing something good, always. So rejoice in the fact that he's doing something good, even when you can't see it. Rejoice as we take time to worship and take communion in just a few minutes. And then I'm also encouraged because Laban didn't like the fact that Jacob was leaving. He wanted to stop him. He wanted to keep manipulating him. He wanted to keep taking advantage of him. But then the Lord showed up, didn't he? And he said to Laban, he said, Jacob is my boy. You got no claim to him. Don't mess with him. Watch yourself, watch yourself. And like Jacob, you and I have an accuser. And Satan does not like the fact that God has freed us and called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. But the truth is he can't do anything about it. He has no claim to us anymore. And our heavenly father has said, that's my boy. That's my girl. We've been delivered and we've been set free. We, we were cursed, but we've come out of that place blessed and with the riches of heaven. Blessed and with the riches of heaven. So wherever you are, whatever's going on in your life today, God's doing something good. You got a reason to rejoice. You got a reason to be thankful. And don't ever underestimate what God is doing, even when you're in a difficult place or a difficult situation. With that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for the hope of your word. Thank you for examples like the life of Jacob that we're able to look at and just marvel at your kindness and your goodness. And that, Lord, where he thought he was just chipping away at a block of time, paying off a debt. Lord, you were really doing so much more. You were doing a work in him. You were preparing him for his next stage in life, preparing him for something better. 
moving pieces into place so that you could bless him in a greater way. Then, Lord, we're so encouraged at how he came out of that situation, blessed and prosperous. And Father, thank you that we don't have to wonder what your heart is toward us. Thank you that we know that you love us, that you desire good for us, that your heart really is to bless us, that we are sons and daughters that you love, that you care for, and that you love to bless. So Father, if there's anyone in this room this evening who's doubting that on any level, Lord, I just ask that you would overwhelm them with your love, that you would overwhelm them with a glimpse of your character, that they would understand that you're not just the God who's out there, but you are the Father who loves us, whose hand is upon us, who is active in our lives, working for good, has not left us alone, but never leaves us, never forsakes us. And Father, I pray for any among us that might be dealing with fear or anxiety. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that our focus would shift from the fear and the anxiety onto you. That we would just enjoy your presence. That we would just abide in you, Lord. As we do that, there's no room left for fear because perfect love casts out fear. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would overwhelm us once again with your perfect love, with your presence this evening, Lord. Wherever we are, we just acknowledge that we need a fresh touch of your presence, God. We need a fresh anointing of your presence. And so we ask for it this evening, Lord, that you would meet us in a powerful way again, that you would renew our faith, that you would recharge and revive our faith, Lord God. And just remind us who you are. Give us a time even now of just abiding in your presence, Lord. We love you, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.